At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. What's up, Zinger Nation? Ryan and I are back from NFT NYC. We have a bunch of crazy stories, crazy market-moving projects to share with you today. Don't Miss it. Stick around. Subscribe to the channel if you're not already. Make sure you smash that like button and go follow us on Twitter in the description. Without further ado, welcome back to Benzinga Moon or Bust. All righty, guys. Uh, I want to know how everyone out there in the chat is doing today. Drop a one if you're doing well. Uh, if you're not doing well, then just hit the like button instead. Uh, Ryan, we were in New York last week. We just got back. Uh, still sleeping. But we, we learned a lot, we saw a lot, and it felt different than any crypto conference, at least in my opinion. I'm curious to hear how you compare it, uh, you know, at least like vibe-wise. How are people feeling? What was the space, uh, you know, what was the sentiment in NFTs? Yeah, it was a way different conference than the other ones I've been to. So I've been to ETH, Denver, and Permissionless. You went to both of those with me, and you've also been to Bitcoin Miami. Yep. NFT NYC was a lot different, though. I mean, there was a lot more of a party scene, a lot more people that just, you know, held NFTs, went because they had an NFT and could go to a party. So that was interesting. It was a lot of fun. There were a ton of celebrities around, uh, but not too much business really going on. There was some at the actual conference, NFT NYC, but I would say that was my least favorite part. The businesses there, for the most part, I wasn't too impressed by. Uh, the satellite events, on the other hand, they had some really cool people there, uh, cool celebrities, great networking opportunities. But the actual event, I mean, we didn't really even see many speakers. I know we went to one with Coinbase. We mm -hmm. saw spotty Wi-Fi, an NFT rapper at one of them, uh, and a teacher. I forgot his name. I'm not sure if you know it, but there's a teacher that got a few crypto punks, a few bored apes, still teaches. Uh, he was, I can't remember. He was kind of interesting, but man, they had they had 1,500 speakers at NFT NYC, which is just absolutely insane because about 15,000 people attended the conference. Uh, so if my math adds up, that's one in every 10 people that intended NFT NYC was actually a speaker. Uh, so if you are hiring someone in crypto, you see that they spoke at NFT NYC <laughs> on their resume. Just don't be too impressed. Why do you think that is, Ryan? Why do you think they had so many speakers and nobody went to them? I'm not sure. I think it's probably marketing, right? Because if there's all these speakers and they'll tell all of their followers, they'll sell more tickets. I'm sure they're selling a lot of these speaking slots as well. Uh, but that's all speculation. I'm not really sure. At the end of the day, though, it, just, it wasn't that interesting to sit and watch speakers. And, and like I said, there were a lot of booths. There were some really cool ones. Gitcoin, I think, was there. Uh, Gnosis Safe was there. There were some new Ethereum protocols. EPNS was there. I talked to them. Really cool people. Zero uh, X, Matcha Dex was there. OpenSea got some drip from OpenSea. Happy nice. about that. But otherwise, I mean, there were a ton of NFT games, which, it, I mean, it's cool in their own respect, right? 
NFT games can be fun, but I mean, after talking to a few of them, they all start sounding the same. And a lot of it really is just DeFi with more steps. And is that really going to work in a bear market? <laughs> I mean, probably not, right? You could be farming these coins and they'll just keep going down and down. People will get less and less interested the less money they can make, right? Mm -hmm. In my estimation, it seems like a lot of these projects, a lot of these people out here uh, ha had made all these plans at the very top of the NFT markets. Um, you know, hey, we're going to go do this event in New York City. It's going to be amazing. Uh, everybody come out here. Um, and then in reality, the markets were not where people thought they were at this point in time. So, you know, people don't really care about the hype projects anymore. It's more about fundamentals. And this event was designed around the opposite of that moonshot NFT projects. Um, that being said, there was a lot of people there who just seemed kind of confused, out of place. Um, and, and I think there's maybe something to do, Ryan. If you have thoughts on that, just generally, I'll turn it over to you. But I want to talk about the comparison between the cities next. Sure. So when we take a look at the events we've been to in Miami, um, it's a very Web3 native scene. Whereas when we're in New York City, very Web2 native scene, very uh, you know traditional scene there. Uh, and I think that might have played a little impact, uh, you know, on the the culture that was this past week in New York City. Ryan, do you have any thoughts on uh, what I just said, basically? I mean, I'm not sure if I agree. Uh, I think the cities do play a role and Web3 is totally busting in Miami. Uh, <laughs> but in New York City, I mean, there are a lot of people in Web3 also in New York City. I think it's more that it's just a focus on NFTs instead of Web3 and DeFi. I think a lot of people that have been in DeFi or crypto have been in for a long time, whereas NFTs are emerging market. Most people have only been in for a year or two. And outside of that, a lot of people here, they were artists, which is great if you're in the industry, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's, you know, songwriting or traditional art. Uh, but yeah, definitely a different crowd interesting uh but not not DeFi oriented which i guess was to be expected it was uh speaking of DeFi though financial products uh and just greater markets we have an interesting interview actually two interesting interviews today uh the first one ryan i see the guest backstage so if you want to set up stefan we'll bring him on and then we'll start talking about the true numbers of inflation yeah, sure thing. Let's bring on Stefan. And guys, if you are earning interest on your stable coins, thinking you're smart because you're beating inflation, earning 10% on your stable coins, well, I have some bad news for you. We're going to bring on Stefan. We're going to talk true inflation. They just made a new index explaining inflation. We'll go over it all. We'll check it out. Uh, and this is going to be a really useful tour, tool to use, uh, especially over these next few years with high inflation. All right. With that out of the way, Stefan, welcome to Benzinga. Welcome to Moon or Bust. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on this great and great to share with you about Truflation. Thanks for joining us. So we all know the CPI, Stefan, it measures inflation. It says inflation is currently around eight and a half percent. But Truflation has found real inflation is actually quite higher than that. So what is Truflation, if you can give us a background first? And how do you measure the true inflation rates? So we basically Truflation is about 11 percent right now. It's about 10.9 percent. If you go to app.truflation.com you'll get a clear breakdown in terms of how we calculate that. Um, basically, we found that when we looked at inflation, and inflation is kind of a big thing, it, it impacts everybody in an economy and everything. 
um, in production in economy. And so what we looked at, how is this being calculated? Um, and when we looked at it, it was it's being calculated on a model and a framework that was developed more than 100 years ago. And so what we thought was there must be a more modern approach to, to do this. Uh, and so that's sort of what we took. We took a developer approach to building out um, a census-based system that allows us to aggregate some 50 plus data sources across 10 million items where we have multiple data sources per item. Uh, we update that in real time. So every day we update the Truflation information and we make that visible in terms of how it's calculated, what are the sources of that, and what that breakdown is in terms of weighting across the different features and, and different functions that all lead up into the CPI, transportation, real estate, rent, um, you know, sort of education, health, uh, et cetera. And so that all aggregates and leads up into the 10.78% that you see on your screen right now. So Stefan, is the CPI using stale data or are you, you using more data here? How are you getting a different number than the CPI? So we're aggregating real-time data from on a census basis. I mean, there was an article, I think it came out on Wall Street Journal, where the CPI currently is calculated by 477 people that go to the grocery stores and do survey um, by, by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And we just felt that in a world where everything's connected and online commerce, uh, we can be much more accurate in terms of sourcing that data and updating that on a more regular basis. So is this something that's trying to replace the CPI? Is this just trying to increase competitiveness in this data market? Uh, what's the end goal for Truflation? Just uh, providing an alternative source of data and providing a new system. Uh, we feel that Web3 lends itself to provide a new system for a modern age, right? And I think we're we are stuck in this old way and, and of systems that have been layered on top of each other after a law and regulation and you know sort of requirements based on a framework again that was a hundred years old. And so, how do we build something more in real time that's connected via? You know, when this framework was developed, you know, if you think about it, we didn't even have electricity, we didn't have phones, we didn't have computers, we didn't have mobile phones back then. And so now all of these systems are now available. We're doing internet commerce, right? I mean, we can pull this pricing data. And so we just felt we needed a different system um, to provide an alternative. And how does this leverage Web3 technology? So we provide this all on-chain all this data is verifiable on blockchain. So you can see what data we've aggregated at what point in time. Every day we update the blockchain with the data that we have, and we make it all available as an Oracle to four different blockchains. So it's available on Avalanche, Polygon, Binance, and Ethereum. Amazing, and who are the biggest users of this data thus far? So we found, to my total surprise, you know, sort of, I thought it was going to be Web3 would use it first and they would be the first to use it and the fastest adopters. But actually, we found that Wall Street is a super keen subscriber to it. And so they're using the raw data off API feeds, not from a smart contract perspective or the Oracle service that we have. They subscribe to the API feed and they're using that to predict and forecast what and how 
they need to adjust their investment portfolio in order to make sure that their dollar doesn't lose in real terms. So Very basically, they have to outperform inflation. For a long time, that's been butter. That's been the easiest thing to do for these <laughs> funds. Uh, given that that's a challenge now, uh, what else changes with, with this inflation? What are some of the other effects, um, you know, maybe for retail besides the banks? Yeah. I mean, the, in terms of the, there's this class of products, investment products that have been created. This, they're called tips. I don't know if you've heard of tips. They're treasury inflation protected securities and they're okay. issued by the government. They provide a bond. Uh, where you can borrow, you can buy this bond to so lend money to the counterparty and they will pay you an interest on top of the inflation. So they will guarantee the net value. So your borrowing amount, they will guarantee that against inflation and pay you a small interest on top of that, uh, on top mm -hmm. of the nominal amount that you invest in. And so all of a sudden, the that's why it's, it's the a party issuing in announcing inflation has a strong vested interest to keep that number as low as possible um, in order to make sure that the payments that they have associated with these tips are also in a number that they can adjust and adopt, right? Or they can sustain. So, Stefan, what if yeah. you don't believe in banks? You know, I thought I was a gigabrain earning 10% on my USDC through DeFi, yeah. uh, but now you spilled this news and I'm actually losing money in real terms. So are there any strategies for DeFi lending maybe? And do you predict that stablecoin interest rates might increase with increasing inflation? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So we've been talking to a number of stablecoin providers in terms of using Trueflation to have an inflation-adjusted stablecoin or what we're now coining flat coins, right? So how do you have a basket of items that is pegged to trueflation? And ultimately, you will always be able to buy an egg with that stable coin or flat coin. And mm. so ultimately, it is flat. It doesn't depreciate based on the peg to a US dollar, for example. Um, and there are a number of innovative um, products that are going to be coming to market pretty soon. And so we see sort of uh, an interesting product emerging called flat coins. And that's ultimately and what incentivized us to really do this is to how do we protect the US dollar from actually devaluing and how do we protect the people's purchasing power? So a flat coin, I'd love to dive into this more. This is a super yeah. interesting idea. Yeah. A flat coin is basically uh, like a treasury inflation protected security, but it's not really a security because it's, uh, I mean, I guess if you could explain more about these tips and how a flat coin is similar and different. So it is somewhat similar, except there's no interest. Tips have an interest rate associated with it because it's like a, a, you're buying a bond. Um, and what you have is, see, it pays interest twice a year. So uh, we, we, you know, a, state, a flat coin doesn't pay any interest. There's no interest associated with it. It's just tied to the changes in that basket, right? So if, and, and bear in mind, you do also have deflationary times, right? So sometimes prices go down, right? And in technology, you know, if you look at inflation historically, just going back a bit, inflation historically has come down. 
because of technology or the only reason why inflation isn't as high, much higher than it is today is thanks to technology. Communication costs have come down, entertainment costs have come down. We now get a whole suite and you know, before we had to go to the cinema, we had to take a car, we had to go to the theaters, we had to buy a ticket, we had to buy a parking spot if we didn't go to a drive-in, um, et cetera. Now we just sit at home and we have Netflix and we have the whole you know, or we have YouTube and we have the whole entertainment suite at the fingertips and without having to leave the home for nine bucks a month or what, uh, you know, whatever the price may be, plus an internet connection. And now we don't need phone. We don't pay any phone bills either. We just all our communication costs have come down. Um, all our work productivity has ri risen because of computers and, and electronics. So are you saying and that there is a necessary innovation to defeat this inflation or is flat coins, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, going to be this technology that will uh, potentially save us from hyperinflation? This is definitely an alternative that can save us from inflation. Um, this is, that's the advantage of programmable money. We can actually program services in there to retain its purchasing power. We can have a transparent calculator that is providing insights in terms of how the products that we purchase is changing in price over time. And we can make that totally visible and we can have that cryptographically verifiable so that anybody can adjust that. Will we get to a point where we can actually have a stable coin or a flat coin that's personalized to you based on your personal inflation numbers? Mm. That's interesting. Do you yeah. think so? Oh, I, I, that's what I'm working towards. I, you know, it's, it's definitely going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, we have about 8 billion people on the planet. I mean, so how do we customize that for everybody? And, um, right. you know, one thing that we do want to do is achieve a world where you have one flat coin for all and everybody around the world. So an egg is always an egg, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, whether I buy an egg here or in Argentina, or in Somalia, it doesn't matter. It's still an egg and it serves a certain amount of nutritional value. It provides a certain amount of energy to us as a human. How do we build a currency that is equal to that and, and reflects uh, that value? You know, that's a huge challenge. And we, we believe with Trueflation, we've started around that trajectory. And now how do we work with great innovators to try and build that end goal um, of a flat coin? And Stefan, you know more about inflation than just about anyone. So I'm curious to ask you just some predictions on inflation, maybe over the course of the rest of the year and then over the course of maybe five to 10 years looking more long term. Look, I mean, there are some super smart people and I do not claim to be the smartest people in inflation uh, person in inflation calculation. That's for sure. Um, I just they feel I've just used technology and I work with some extremely smart institutions and individuals that pull that together. You know, inflation peaked. I think we are on our calculator. You can see it there. 11.5 percent was the highest. It's come down a little bit from that. Um, and and ultimately that's mainly because we're updating it daily and all that means is the same time last year at this day the inflation was 10 percent less than it was right now today um 
you know, I think inflation is going to still stay high. I don't think we will be able to solve it as quick as we think I, we think we can. Uh, I don't think we have the tools available in this day and age anymore, or the, the governments have the tool in this day and age anymore to solve it as quick as they think. They think they can bring down the debt really quickly. You know, just in by the 2030, we won't have any debt anymore. I just don't see those numbers actually taking place. I think it's going to be a lot more challenging uh, for the world. And um, what does that mean for us? You know, I don't know. I think we've shifted into a world of abundance where, I mean, I don't know, we just had NFT New York. We're creating all of this new value that it has a value associated with. NFTs are now worth, what, 10, 20 ETH, right? I mean, a JPEG really is now worth something so high. Who would have thought that? And then, oh, I just lost all my money in, in this this cryptocurrency, in this Web3, oh, God, I got to go back and work again and, and start making some more money and getting next crypto, which is the next one. How do I build more value again, right? And so I think we've come to that mindset that, oh, I got to go make my, make my earn, earn my living, right? And, and um, make sure that I can pay gas and make sure I can enjoy what I need to enjoy. There's a lot there. I don't know where that takes us. That doesn't answer your question about 10 years out. And I don't know how to predict inflation 10 years out, but I mean, if you look back, I mean, it's never gotten cheaper, right? So here's maybe a direction we can take this is, yeah. uh, what are some of the best outcomes and worst outcomes we can achieve? Uh, and how do we steer towards those best outcomes? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think just having everything transparent on a modern infrastructure, um, stripping away, uh, yeah, and sort of making that available for everybody to participate and the experts to participate, building a model that works like that. Um, that's what we believe is the answer. How do we build a modern infrastructure? How do we make that data available for everybody? And how do we get and aggregate the best data possible so that anybody can innovate off the back of that foundation? That's really what we want to do. And how do we facilitate innovation? How do we make sure we have an open, clean area and framework that anybody can innovate on? Because innovators create new jobs. Innovators create new opportunities and create wealth. And I think that's what we're really aspiring to. And we want to have that framework. We want to have that open and system and environment for people to work on. If we're not extremely careful, uh, what type of scale uh, what type of recession, what scale of recession do you think is possible? Yeah, if we're not careful, we're, we're going to go into a very different world, right? I, I really fear that we're going to have a world of um, controlled environment, controlled framework, um, and everything, you know, we will have, yeah, it, it'll be a very sad environment, in, you know, be re recession, but it will be resulting in, you know, a squeeze on, on everybody. Um, mm -hmm. We will have controlled money. We will, you know, you will, today you're allowed, you, you didn't eat your sugar. Uh, you, you didn't have, you, you ate too much sugar. So you're not allowed to go to the cinema and watch Netflix. We shut it off. Your money doesn't work on Netflix and YouTube today because you need to walk more steps. Um, things like that, right? We'll have all of a sudden, oh, you, you know, this money's not valid anymore. It, it was given to you three days ago. It's expired right? and things like that. So you'll have actions like that come up. And that's if we leave it to centralized solutions, that's a threat that can come with programmable money. Yep.
Yeah, I mean, we and, see the central bank digital currencies in China are capable of doing things just like that. Don't follow this rule, you, you lose this money, right? Yeah, you have this social credit score, right? If you're bad, you posted a bad tweet, oh, bad boy, we take the money away. Or <laughs> you can't go to the supermarket or the restaurant and buy that uh, noodles, those noodles for dinner or whatever it might be. And I think that will be, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid of a world like that. So much more that so than recession. So and I think as an oh sorry go ahead yeah no no just I think as a population we need to be realized that pop that is a possibility and I think sometimes we just you know hold what do you call it when you put a blind eye in front of you and you just you don't sort yeah. of keep your eyes wide open and sort of Blissful realize fingers. wow that is a, exactly that's another way to say it thank mm -hmm. you <laughs> so yeah. is there a bright side uh, how do we make it out of this uh and given that you are the inflation expert gold or bitcoin bitcoin for me definitely because i can carry my bitcoin around with me on my phone right i mean that's that's what i love about it you know sort of it's portable it's anywhere accessible at any point in time and if i don't have one phone i have another phone i have a computer access so you just have multiple um different ways to access it so no, hundred, hundred percent, no doubt about it. And but I think there are more bitcoins. I think we'll have. Uh, I, I mean, that's why I love Web three. We've we've created. You know, so I got into Bitcoin two thousand twelve, really early on. I, I I loved it for the transaction capability and the ease of the the cost. Right, there was no cost with the transaction that was instantaneously and around the world on the other side. And I mm -hmm. love that functionality of Bitcoin when it first started, then it started getting too many users started getting on there, the transactions started getting too big, started slowing down, it got costly. And that's when then, ooh, innovators took took control again, we launched Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. And then so all of these different new networks, Ethereum started growing significantly, started getting clogged up, started getting expensive. Boom, we had some more forks, right? We had all these EVMs pop up, these layers, Polygon, we had Binance with their EVM, we had Phantom with their EVM. So all of a sudden, these different EVMs came up. Uh, and, and then that's sort of where we're leading today. And each time, everyone represented a new set of opportunities for a new category or a new group of entrepreneurs that came in and tried to build businesses on top of those platforms. So that's job creation, that's job creation, that's wealth creation that's innovation, that's credit for new businesses that launch on top of each of these networks. Um, and you can now today convert any of those currencies. They are liquid, right? They're liquid assets. So you can convert them into fiat. We've had a struggle and we've seen a huge test on our system right now in this period where all of a sudden the liquidity has dried out because it was extracted from the system so fast by so many players but that said we've had an injection into the system with 33 trillion dollars that were printed by these institutions they you know if you think about it i think you know social capital did a study from chamas palapatipatia he did a study that they i think they looked at they said 92 cents of every dollar minted went into the stock market hmm. So that wow. means pretty much dollar for dollar that was printed 
went into stocks and bonds and, and, and securities. That's $33 trillion around the world that went into the capital markets over the course of a three-year or two-and-a-half-year period. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take of that $33 trillion, let's say 5% is in the high-risk category. So 5% is high risk. That puts it at maybe what? 1.6, you know, $6 trillion that goes into crypto because crypto would be categorized as a high risk by a lot of these institutions. And so that is about $1.6 trillion that injected into crypto. And if you can see the growth from 2020 to now, we had an injection and an extraction of about $2 trillion or $1.5 trillion out of the market because interest rate went up. I need to pull my high risk capital out of the market. Where do I pull it from? Oh, it comes from crypto and hence crypto drops one and a half trillion dollars. And then basically it happened over you know, the course of, let's say, one month. And the market mm -hmm. just wasn't liquid enough to be able to sustain that. Stefan, this has been incredibly insightful. I'd love to have you back on again soon. <laughs> um, I've dropped the website in the chat for everybody to go check out Trueflation, see the real numbers. Stefan, is there anywhere else the people should go to connect with you or the org? So on the website, you have all our social, you know, you can follow me at srust99, S-R-U-S-T-99. Um, and that's my personal Twitter. And then Trueflation is the Twitter account. Please follow that. And if you want to find out more, we're on Discord, we're on Telegram, and we look for criticism. We look for interaction. We want to be challenged in terms of how we calculate the data, how we can improve what we do. Um, so we are growing the community. We have a smaller community now, about some 4,000 uh, participants, but they're super active, very engaged, and they let us know how we can improve our services. So yeah, let us know and, and love to love to come back. And hopefully next time we've got some more features that we'll be able to share about Trueflation and what's being built on there. We have 40 companies already in, one, in the course of two weeks uh, build on top of Trueflation in the wow. crypto Web3 world. So that was pretty impressive. Very impressive. Thank you, yeah. Stefan, for coming on. We'll have to have you back on sometime shortly uh, when you guys get some more features on here. Yeah, thank you. And we'll be sharing a lot more very soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers, Stefan. Thank you. All righty, Ryan. First interview done. Today we have two interviews. Do you want to recap the first one real quick? Take a second, share some thoughts, uh, and we will bring on the next guest shortly thereafter. Yeah, let's do it, man. I wanted to do the mob score today, you know, if anyone's a car score. guy out there. Uh, but maybe if we get through this interview, if we have five, ten minutes left at the end, we can do that. If not, maybe we push it to Friday. Uh, but we'll see. That was just going to go over some more NFT. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I see events, but I love that interview. I mean, that was super mm. insightful. It's really good to keep up to date with inflation, especially when the CPI is far off from what the true inflation rate actually is. Now, if, like I said, if you think you're earning, you're beating out inflation by earning eight, nine percent, that might not actually be the case. And this is a great tool to use. I agree, Ryan. Very fascinating conversation. Uh, and we will definitely try to do that NFT NYC recap at the end. We'll leave a few minutes. Uh, before we get on to the next interview, though, uh, we have to thank the sponsor of Moon or Bust, FTX.us. If you're looking to get in or out of crypto, FTX.us is a great user-friendly on-ramp uh, from blockchain to fiat. So go check them out, US only. Uh, but without, without further ado, Ryan, why don't you introduce our next guest today on Moon or Bust? Yeah, we have Hao Han Shu coming on from Epiphany. It's a DEX or it's an exchange aggregator that aggregates over 20 plus exchanges. We're going to talk NFTs. We're going to talk DeFi. We're going to talk centralized exchanges and much more. So without further ado, Hao Han, how are you? Doing good. Hey, Logan, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, Haohan, before we get started, can you tell us what your background is in crypto and how you started Epiphany? Yeah, sure. So, um, I started trading stocks and options back in freshman year in college. And back in, uh, this was like 2014. And back in uh, 2016, a friend had told me about Ethereum. That was actually the first crypto I discovered. Uh, so, I, so, when I started trading Ethereum, I realized, you know, your first point, your first point of access was like Coinbase. And Gemini and Kraken back then, but in the stock world, your first point of access is actually like TD Ameritrade, E Trade, or Robinhood whatsoever. One thing I realized was that Ethereum was actually priced, and Bitcoin also was priced differently across all the exchanges, right? So like Bitcoin was well like three eighty at the time. On Coinbase and Gemini, you could find like a twenty dollar price difference. So that's when I first started arbitraging by hand, and then later you realize you realize these exchanges actually have APIs. So, so I was trying to build this product internally just for myself to better like arbitrage between changes. And then later on, I realized this product could be used for like other people who are also trading crypto at the time. So that's kind of how the company Epiphany started. So essentially what we do today is we're a crypto trading platform for like professional and institutional traders. So you can think of us as an exchange for, of exchanges. So we're trying to create a one global market for cryptocurrencies. And we do this through providing institutions and uh, whale traders the tools to have the most seamless access to a more complete crypto market. Awesome. So what are some of these tools that, uh, you know, separate you or distance you from other people trying to aggregate liquidity? Yeah, so we we want to build a set of tools that offer like modules for the major needs in trading, such as like direct market data access, 
order management and like a strategy framework for trading algo implementation. So all this together addresses some of the existing performance issues traders face while reducing significant coding efforts by like similar firms. So there are some pain points when you're implementing a strategy, right? Like coding effort, research, research capabilities and trading strategy implementation. These often create a barrier to entry and kind of inhibit quant traders from moving at a faster, moving at a faster pace. So every existing active trader has a, their own set of systems to connect to markets, right? And each system by itself is not very complete. So you want to build a system that addresses all their pain points. So this is some, this is just an example as one of the tools we offer in our platform, but um, in, in our main product, Epiphany Connect, we actually offer a tool that allows most of the traders to get access to, you know, 25 of the major exchanges across the world through just a one-time KYC, uh, one set of APIs. Yeah. Interesting. And what's the cost for this? Is there any downside to these advantages? Uh, not really. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> That's awesome. So I have a question for you, Hao Han. Uh, with more and more trading happening on DEXs, is it possible to aggregate both DEX information and centralized exchange information on Ep Epiphany? Uh, is this something that may happen in the future? Is it something you've already tested out? Uh, yeah, so this is something that we were actually supposed to roll out last year, but we entirely underestimated uh, what, what DEXs are, essentially. So if, when you look at most of the DEXs, so DEXs, kind of started like all the way back in like 2014, right? These are essentially just like order book based exchanges, but built on the blockchain, which is like very inefficient. So the so the first, I guess, successful DEX out there was Uniswap essentially. So essentially it was able to facilitate a market using like an AMN model, right? So it's no longer like an order book model where everyone's like posting their bid and asks into an order book and waiting for like other people to lift it. So Uniswap has a very efficient way of facilitating the market and in order to kind of get information from Uniswap, you kind of need to also read on-chain information and be able to kind of like uh, present that information, the price information in Uniswap to the traders today in, uh, in like different ways. So, so if you were to think about it, if you were to present Uniswap's price information in an order book manner, that would be very difficult. It requires a lot of calculation. You also have to probably parse a bunch of on-chain information. So. Um, it's something we're thinking about in the future. It's definitely possible, but um, yeah, it's very hard to do. Not a lot of people so have done it. It's hard for to gather this data from AMMs because it doesn't actually show the price on chain, right? They have to calculate it uh, using x times y equals k. Is that the case, or is it like a, a different reason that it's hard to gather this data? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that um, in a typical exchange, it's usually facilitated by, by like an order book model. Right? right. So it's very clear where like the prices are, what people are willing to offer to buy or sell. But in the AMM, you, you can kind of know you can kind of know what the liquidity looks like at the at the moment. If like no more people interact with the protocol, you can kind of know like how much how much you're going to get a Ethereum for. So some of the traders want to prefer more traditional traders want to kind of prefer to see this information in a way that's similar to how you present an order book. That would be very difficult because on-chain, obviously the data, the transactions process is a lot slower and you're gonna essentially have to present an entire liquidity pool, translate that into an order book. So that's the difficult part, yeah. Got it. And you started Epiphany actually while you were attending Columbia, right? So I'm wondering yeah, that's uh, 
what it was like actually founding this company while you were at Columbia. Did you get help from any students? Was there even a community of blockchain oriented students when you were there? I know it was pretty early for you. Logan and I both went to U of M and there was a big blockchain community uh, that we were a part of, but you graduated about four years earlier than us. Um, so I'm curious what that was like, you know, founding this company while you were attending Columbia. Yeah, so, so I think I graduated actually two years earlier than you guys. When I first tried to found the company, I tried to found it one year, I think one year and a half after I started trading crypto. So back in like 2017 or in the 2016 or something. So I, so this was my junior year at Columbia, I had like taken a year off. I essentially tried to like drop out of Columbia, try to start this company. But the first time it didn't work out, I went, I, I went back to Beijing. And I think I start, I tried to I hire two engineers from like a, a portfolio company of a venture capital I used to intern at. And first time it didn't work out, we we're trying to write the entire thing like Python and it just turned out very poorly. And uh, at the time, I think very few people wanted to fund the company because people had very, a very tough time um, digesting the idea of like why the crypto market was fragmented and what's, what, what the differences are. Also, the market was too small for most people to care. Like Bitcoin was like broke 400 barely at the time. So no one cared enough. Uh, of the idea. So the first time it didn't work out. So I returned to Columbia in, uh, to finish my junior year. And I, and I, it was crypto winter. It's like right after the ICO bubble burst. So I, so I didn't think about like starting this company until like uh, end of 2018. I want to give this idea another shot. And I got to know someone um, in the trad, in the TradFi world, essentially. So people who are much more well-versed in like trading systems, like performance and matching engines, like market making. This is when when I understood, wow, like this system actually required like a lot of like TradFi knowledge and like technical capabilities. So uh, I had I just had a better team the second time around, and I think uh, the crypto crypto winter from the ICO bubble burst was like recovering. So I had some funding from like family and friends. Yeah. On the note of bringing in more traditional, uh, you know, teammates and partners, uh, something that's been I think made clear to everyone recently is that. Web3 is not a new thing. It will take Web2 becoming Web3 for Web3 to exist. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I certainly agree with that. So when I look at when I look at Web3, I think of it like this. So when you look at Web1, I guess, in the very early days of the internet, you just have a website, right? Very few people can create websites. So you, you have a bunch of websites. Essentially, it's read-only. Web1 is read-only. So you go on a website, there's a bunch of information posted by the person who creates the website, right? It's read only. And web two is read and write. So so you think of web two, right? Content creators have put up their own content and, and a lot of other, like e-commerce as well, that's also content. When you list something for sale, that's content for that website. Web three, it's essentially read, write, and own. So I think ownership is something that's important to be emphasizing web three because like you you should so what you put values to like the data you own right you put the values to like virtual assets so it, when you put value to these things it also emphasizes ownership so a lot of people can own these things um powered by like blockchain infrastructure so that's what i think of web3 so i entirely agree with what you just said we see a lot of web2 people in the web3 space these days a lot more than uh you know the first time around we took a stab at this startup um what are some of the more significant changes that you've seen? I mean, we see uh, when Web2 comes in, it's obviously made more serious, right? There's big, big money 
moving into the space. It's going to add regulation. It's going to add talent, but it's also going to add centralization. Is this a concern? Is decentralization uh, ever going to be achievable? Um, I think it depends on the areas you're looking at um, in Web3, I guess. Some of the projects, I believe, just don't need to be decentralized. Like some things would just never be decentralized because they don't need to. I think a lot of times people look at this as like, okay, because it's Web3, it's powered by blockchain, things just need to be decentralized, but more trust and transparency. A lot of times certain infrastructure just doesn't need to. Maybe, for example, like GameFi, right? Certain gaming companies just don't want everything to be like as transparent as free because it's actually kind of like detrimental to the entire games ecosystem. So that's why today you have like a lot of like companies trying to integrate like traditional like triple A studio games to the GameFi world and the games just don't want to because the games um, economy just doesn't work that way. Uh, but for some some of the other things like some of the say like step in, move to earn games, it was built in the beginning to be decentralized and the economy of like the game, I guess, is it's already built to be decentralized. So um, a lot of things just don't, uh, in my opinion, a lot of things don't need to be decentralized necessarily, but uh, some of the Web2 folks, they definitely come in uh, thinking that what what kind of problem can we solve by, by decentralizing an existing model? I think that's mm -hmm. the starting point they have. So I think some of the mm -hmm. solutions are more uh, realistic instead of just riding on the concept of decentralization. Is that one of the big takeaways from this previous market cycle is that, hey, let's start with uh, you know, Web 2 models and work them towards Web 3. A lot of people were just trying to decentralize products that didn't have a reason or need to be decentralized because funding was, was hot, right? Now there's this return to, to fundamentals uh, and maybe we're gonna see people shift more back towards traditional models, um, you know, less crazy on the decentralized everything attitude. Uh, what are some of the other lessons, morals, takeaways that will really become clear during this bear market from you know the previous three years? Uh, I think one thing people already realize now is like in crypto, there's kind of like two groups of people. One is like the I guess tech crypto or like crypto builders. The other is like the speculators, right? In the bear market, even on crypto Twitter, like in the past few weeks, you just see there's some of the discussions on crypto Twitter are just a lot more meaningful. This is my personal opinion. A lot of people are actually discussing like how certain technical solutions are going to solve an existing problem instead of like a lot of price speculation, a lot of like a lot of like pumping sentiment on crypto Twitter. So you see, you actually find a lot of serenity in the bear market in these discussions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also, yeah, a lot of ideas will only ride on the decentralization aspect to essentially be gone. Like in the past, I've had like a lot of pitches, like one of the weirdest ones was like, let's build like a AWS on like a decentralized infrastructure. And when you ask them why they couldn't explain, they just said, okay, because it's decentralized. But why, like, does it add more performance? It doesn't. Um, so some of these ideas will die out. Um, but yeah, one of the things I, we're already learning with the bear market is that in, the, in times like this, you have more meaningful discussions, builders will stay here. And also in times like this, a lot of, a lot of people will kind of shift their focus away from this area, which leaves the opportunity for the people who are truly in this area for them to like take advantage of the existing opportunities. Fascinating. And you were considering going public. Is that true? We're actually already in the process of going public. Yeah, so back in January, uh, Pivani had announced a SPAC deal with uh, with one of the SPACs out there named Avery. 
and we've been in the process for like a couple of months now. Yeah. Awesome. What's to look forward to there? Uh, a lot of things, essentially. So Epiphany is one of the few, uh, one of the few crypto companies that's currently um, uh, doing a SPAC. So like Bullish and Circle and a few other companies also doing SPACs. Uh, the reason why we want to do SPACs is because one, for capital. Second, to bring like more trans transparency and brand for our institutional clients. Um, a third is probably as a public company, you just have a, you just have a, a more flexible tools to get access to capital. So for plans like inorganic growth or like organic growth and things like that. And do you have any plans to deploy that capital yet? Where are you going to allocate this to grow Epiphany? I definitely enhance some of the system performance. There's a lot of things that Epiphany want to do down the road. Um, the, we, we believe, so we actually believe the core problem with the fragmentation of the crypto market actually exists in the clearing and settlement layer. This is obviously like a very detailed topic. So when you look at different crypto exchanges, right, you kind of have to do this thing called pre-funding in order to trade on the exchange. So just because you have funds on Coinbase doesn't, uh, doesn't mean you can trade on Gemini. So like when you see like a lower price Bitcoin Gemini, you can't really buy that because all your funds on Coinbase. So you kind of have to move your funds around in order to take care, uh, take advantage of the price. So in the early days of crypto arbitrage, this is essentially all people did. They just moved money across exchanges. Like even like in the story, like Sam Bankman Freed, right? It's like moving Korean won and like other other cryptocurrencies across like uh, different exchanges in different countries. So that's the issue that exists in the clearing settlement layer. So we believe that it's more in order to fully solve the fragmentation issue in the crypto market, it's crucial to kind of like unify the clearing settlement layer first. What that means is like in the crypto market, you should have one or multiple custodians who work with each other. So people's assets can sit in these custodians, right? And, and you can trade essentially in any market. So let's say you have all your assets sitting at one custodian and you're, you're simultaneously trading on Coinbase and Gemini. At the end of the day, you'll just settle your assets to Coinbase and Gemini. You sort of do that in real time and have funds at Coinbase and Gemini at the time. So this is kind of like uh, kind of similar to how it works in equity. You just settle afterwards instead of having your funds like sitting at a place ready for that. Yeah. Hmm. Han, I'm curious your thoughts on all these different exchanges becoming insolvent. Uh, what's the main reason you think this is happening? And also, do you think it was a good idea for FTX to bail out BlockFi? Uh, I... I'm not sure what FTX has planned there, but uh, I think FTX is coming out of very good intentions. I think bailing out BlockFi is definitely important for the crypto ecosystem because BlockFi failing actually just carries a ton of risk for the entire ecosystem. So someone would have to do it. And I'm very glad like SPF kind of like <laughs> stood up and like did that himself. And he's probably like, the only one who can like do that. Uh, yeah, so so that's one thing. Also, on the topic of exchanges becoming like insolvent, doing bad, I think in the past few years, a lot of exchanges have kind of just ex expanded very aggressively. So when you look at like what happened after 2017, right, the exchanges, uh, like I guess exchanges outside the U.S. or the non-compliant like exchanges, they kind of went a different route than some than the U.S. exchanges. So when you look at the U.S. exchanges, like Coinbase, Gemini and some of the others, they kind of went the institutional route, at least the successful ones. So like Coinbase had like Coinbase Prime, they invested heavily in that. Gemini also, they recently just acquired a platform that's similar to Epiphany. Um, and while outside the US, so you have exchanges like Binance, Holby, OKX, like you can go on. They kind of started a separate route. They started products like 
you know, perpetuals, a lot of like super high leverage derivatives. So that's like an entirely different route. So exchanges kind of, uh, yeah, so exchanges are in these two factions essentially, but all of them are kind of expanding very aggressively to trying to grow that, uh, to grow towards that direction. Um, and uh, with with all the seven in the bear market, exchanges essentially have trouble to like scale back because they're already invest, invested too much heavily in like one or several of these business lines. So I think, um, yeah, so I think it's a tough market for exchanges. Yeah, it's, especially the smaller ones. Yeah. And I think a couple of years down the line, a lot more people will know what DeFi is and how to use it. Do you think they'll remember back to, you know, 2022 when Celsius went under and all these other exchanges started to freeze users' funds? Do you think that will drive more DeFi use in the future? Um, I think I, I think to a degree, yes. But I think the growth of DeFi, I, I see that as a kind of like independent from what like, what like kind of hybrid, like semi-centralized, semi-decentralized like um, organizations like Celsius or like BlockFi, right? Um, uh, so, so I think in, in the in the DeFi world, so I think what's different about this, well, this is kind of like a controversial topic. Like what I think is different about this crypto winter is that, is that, um, is that the, in this time, a lot of people actually realize like there's an asset diversity in crypto, right? A lot of DeFi protocols are already active and there's like significant tokens behind them supporting the growth of these protocols. Instead of just like a couple of years ago, you have like these winters where like no one knows any other token besides like Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? And there weren't a lot of protocols built on uh, Ethereum or Solana, let alone like DeFi protocols. Right now you have like lending, exchange, uh, like NFT, you, you can name it, a lot of other protocols. So I think the growth of these protocols will largely depend on how like the community of these uh, projects evolve uh, instead of like how uh, how like organizations like Celsius and BlockFi evolve. Yeah. How do you indicate a winning project during the bear market? Uh, I think it, it would have to come down to the numbers. So for Ethereum, for example, you probably have to look at like how many protocols are consuming like however many ETH at a time, like how many protocols are actually active. And sort of like look at a project and, and see how many protocols are potentially going to be building on that blockchain because you, you don't see a lot of like subs, like substantial progress on these other blockchains that don't have that don't, that don't yet have protocols on it yet. So I would just look at like Solana and Ethereum and some of the more prominent blockchains that already have like running and successful protocols on it and just trying to look at the demand on those tokens. There's a lot of alt layer one hype last year among other trends are there any trends or fads that you see not making a comeback during the next market cycle uh not making a comeback in the next market cycle how oh, han i put all my uh, money into shiba inu so i'm really <laughs> looking for a, a very specific answer here <laughs> yeah so uh, I, I guess like that could be one of them so uh my personal opinion is like you know coins like doge or like <laughs> well, I don't want to say Shiba Inu here are like very <laughs> unlikely to come back because like, you know, a lot of those are sentiment driven, essentially. Um, I mean, you can't really like build up anything on like, <laughs> on like Dogecoin, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I would say, unfortunately, my, my personal opinion, yeah, obviously, like Elon Musk would probably disagree with that also. Yeah. <laughs> But to play devil's advocate, Dogecoin was around in 2017. It got a decent amount of hype. So, I mean, maybe it will come back, right? Yeah. Or do you think this a, time is different? 
if there was more hype, uh, if there's going to be more hype, like a couple of years down the road, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen. Yeah, Coach it didn't really come back. Go, yeah. It didn't really come back for no reason. Right. It's not just because it was around for five years. It was because Elon Musk started tweeting about it mm-hmm. every day back in May. Right. Yeah, I think I think the difference like between like Dogecoin and say like Bitcoin is that like Bitcoin has like a more uh, foundational belief uh, under the idea of like Bitcoin, right? And uh, essentially, when you when you look at Bitcoin, essentially it's just like a commodity, right? Like it's all, the price is only going to be higher because the next person is going to buy it from like a higher price from you, uh, and like it, it's there's no uh, there's no substantial demand unless someone's trying to use it as a currency. Because like the when you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, all it does is like it does like it accounts for the transaction of Bitcoin, it clears and it settles Bitcoin. That's essentially all it does. It's not like a smart contract. You can't like try to build things on it at the moment. Um, so I think I think Dogecoin is kind of similar. Uh, like people will buy and sell it. A lot of that will be like speculation, but Bitcoin has like a stronger belief behind it. It's, it's kind of like the gold in the crypto world. Yeah. Are you bullish on the Bitcoin Lightning Network? Yeah, I actually have a few friends working there. The first time, um, the first time, I, actually, the first time I heard about crypto was probably in high school. This I just didn't even care. A friend had told me, "Yeah, let's like get some money from our families and buy a bunch of mining machines." In like 2013, uh, I was like, "To mine what? Uh, Bitcoin?" It's like, "Yeah, I don't care what that is." And, and so, so I entirely rejected the idea. But now, um, uh, yeah, but he. But he has been working on this light network, so it, it makes Bitcoin more efficient. And I think that's one of the core issues with Bitcoin. It was a, it's a very pure idea. It's probably the only like decentralized currency that has like a truly anonymous founder, right? No, after like what like 14 years, no one knows who Satoshi is still. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably one of the most pure decentralized uh, decentralized projects because I think one of the core one to make it truly decentralized. You need to have like a founder or a team that's like truly anonymous, so like no one can know who that is, or like for lack of like better terms, that like no one can hold it like responsible if like regulars didn't like it. Uh, so I think Bitcoin is a very pure idea. Lightning Network definitely uh, makes it more efficient by only uh, by only improving it, not like making it worse in a way. Yeah. So when I look at the Bitcoin Lightning Network, I think about adoption and when and as you compare it to Ethereum, there are a lot more users on Ethereum's network and a lot more applications to lend out your crypto or trade your crypto. So do you see this being built on the Lightning Network yet? Uh, and if so, what applications interest you? And if not, uh, why not? Uh, what applications build on the Lightning Network, you mean? Yes. I don't think that's uh, exactly that's how Lightning works. You think maybe you're thinking of the Stacks right. yeah, uh, Stacks. network, which is adds some smart contract functionality to Bitcoin, but right. Lightning Network uh, is just a, just a payment graph. Copy. It, yeah, exactly. I was I was just gonna say I think most of the stuff on uh, like built around Bitcoin would be like payment related because it's not as a flexible uh, blockchain as like Ethereum, in my opinion. Yeah, so most of be big payment related and kind of like use Bitcoin as a medium. And how to use like Lightning Network to kind of like facilitate that transaction faster. Yeah. So do you think the end goal of Bitcoin is still a currency like Satoshi said in the white paper? Or is it still more of a store of value, more akin to gold? Um, I think it will be a currency. Uh, in my opinion, I think when Bitcoin is founded, it was kind of designed as a currency, right? We kind of, we kind of added the idea that it's going to be a store of value like gold later on. 
I don't think it's what like Satoshi intended. So when you look at like how he or like this group of people built Bitcoin, essentially it's like this currency, unlike any other currency, this currency kind of like does accounting and clears and settles without like the interference of anyone or like relying on like a central organization, right? But when you look at our fiat currency, like take US dollar, for example, when you wire US dollar to someone at another bank, domestically in the US, you require like Fedwire, which is like domestic um, clearing settlement system. And internationally, you require on this like organization called like CHIPS, it's like the clearinghouse something. Uh, so the US dollar relies on like centralized institutions to clear and settle and does accounting, right? Then there's like messaging network like SWIFT. Every other currency kind of has a similar set of system. Uh, so they're easily controlled by a centralized institution. Like the governor can just say, okay, we don't want like some country in SWIFT, like Russia, for example, right, recently. But Bitcoin is a truly open currency. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's like a store of value because like it's very hard to still argue like what's the underlying value? How do you even price Bitcoin, right? I would say it's like a very cool medium of exchange, which is a currency. That, that exists in a very decentralized way. Yeah. Fascinating. Halan, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Incredible conversation. We'd love to have you back on anytime. Uh, is there any plugs that you want to make for the audience out there? Where can they go uh, to connect with you and your product? Uh, to connect with me, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, sh I should be more active, uh, actually. Uh, just my full name, Halhan XU. Um, and for, for Epiphany, we have a Twitter as well. Yeah. And make sure to check out Epiphany's website if you're a quant trader. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Haohan. All right. Both of those are going in the chat. Thank you so much. That is today's show, Haohan. Uh, All right. Thanks, guys. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. Thanks for joining. All right, Ryan. Great episode today. Some of the best conversations we've had in a minute, honestly. Um, any closing thoughts for us? No, I agree with you, though. Super cool interviews. That's what happens when you talk to someone who got into Bitcoin in 2012 and the other guy, you know, got into Bitcoin in 2013. So both OGs in the space had a lot of good things to say. But we'll see you on Friday. Peace and love, Zinger Nation. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.